Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It remains September the 22nd, uh, 2021. Uh, it is early afternoon in California, West Coast time. Uh, it's the next day. It's 20, September 23rd elsewhere, including New Zealand, where my guest is from today. Earlier today, um, I talked to the British-based journalist Sathnam Sangira about his new book, Empire Land, which treats the United Kingdom as a sort of tragic joke in, in, in many ways, um, particularly its approach to empire. We've had a number of different shows on the decline of the United Kingdom in economic and particularly in global terms as a, as a, as a perceived superpower or a declining superpower or a declining even regional power. Philip Stevens from the Financial Times was on the show recently uh, talking about his new book, A Post-War History of the United Kingdom. Uh, Ian Baruma, another journalist, uh, talking about the not-so-special relationship between the United Kingdom uh, and the United States. And meanwhile, on the other front, we've been talking a lot about the Middle East. Um, Robert Draper has been on the show, the uh, New York Times journalist, talking about the catastrophe of the Second World War and the reasons America got involved. And Juan Cole, another American-based analyst and critic of American government, has suggested on the show that the Second Gulf War was probably the costliest, most disastrous foreign policy mistake in American history. We haven't done any shows, though, on the First Gulf War. And uh, my guest today has a new book out, Flight 149, um, which somehow combines the catastrophe of the various wars in the Gulf with the decline of Britain as a not just a superpower, but a regional power. Um, his name is Stephen Davis. He's a, uh, a New Zealand-based journalist, and he's talking to me uh, from New Zealand uh, today, from Dunedin. Uh, Stephen, um, would it be fair to say that your new book um, is uh, Flight 149 is... Uh, in a broader sense, a book about uh, the decline of Britain as a global power? Hello, Andrew. Yes, the decline of Britain and its interesting relationship with the United States and and the, and the consequences for, um, for the Middle East for the last 30 years. Uh, the first Gulf War has kind of more or less been forgotten because People think it was the good war, the simple war. It all ended nice and neatly and life moved on. But as my book uh, uh, says, that's not the case at all. Uh, in this case, uh, the catastrophe of Flight 149 was uh, Britain attempting to do a favor for the United States and it going badly wrong. As you say, the, the first Gulf War was a consequence in 1990 of the uh, Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, uh, a series of miscalculations by Saddam Hussein that had tragic consequences, not just for the region, but of course for Hussein himself. Um, tell me briefly, because not everyone watching the show, Stephen, will be familiar with uh, what happened. For many of us, 1990 is ancient history. Remind us yeah. of the, the background of the war, of what happened, uh, and and uh, how, of course, that uh, 
the, 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 the reality, the geopolitical, the geostrategic, the geomilitary reality uh, was accidentally involved with flight one, uh, 149. Yes. So just to remind um, uh, people out there, this is a period of time where Saddam Hussein was a U.S. ally, of course, a U.S. ally against Iran, which they considered a greater threat. Uh, he had a dispute uh, with Kuwait over an oil field. The oil field was uh, across the border between Iraq and Kuwait, and Saddam felt that the Kuwaitis were stealing too much of the revenue. Uh, so he started making, you know, threats over a period of time, very explicit threats. And um, as I said, so he's a US ally. It's important to remember when we think about what followed. So there was a meeting at one stage between Saddam and the US and uh, April Glasby. The meeting is very controversial and the in interpretation of it has been hotly debated over the years. But bottom line is he seems to have got the impression that America didn't care too much about Kuwait, and so um, he could go ahead and threaten them. And uh, eventually, he invaded the country. The um, next step was, was he going to threaten Saudi Arabia with its uh, huge oil fields in the north? And um, the decision-making about that has had immense consequences for the Middle East and the West ever since. Yeah, um, I, I think we could treat this first Gulf War as the first step in the catastrophe that led to the second Gulf War and then, of course, to the catastrophes of Afghanistan. But how is this connected, Stephen, with um, Flight 149? Uh, you, you begin the book with a description of the people getting on this plane. Some of them were going to New Zealand. Some were going uh, to, 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 to other places in Southeast Asia. They were all innocently getting on a plane uh, just as the first Gulf War was about to break out. None of them had any idea, or one or two of them had an inkling, but none of them had any idea of the catastrophe, of the tragedy that they, they themselves personally were about to become embroiled in absolutely so uh to set the scene uh, flight 149 is uh, at heathrow that morning uh everybody had reported that iraqi troops had gathered massing on the border massing tanks on the border with kuwait and likely to invade the plane was delayed uh for a couple of hours and during that delay a group of young men got on board and went to the back of the plane and uh, people looked at them and thought, mm, they look a lot like soldiers. This is a bit worrying. The plane takes off and it flies towards Kuwait, which was a refueling stop. On board are 400 odd passengers and crew, including enough Americans, people from 15 different countries, I think. And three and a half hours flying time out, the invasion starts. Other flights coming to Kuwait are turned away. Indeed, a Kuwaiti Airlines flight, which was coming to interland at Kuwait City Airport, the air traffic controllers said, uh, there's an emergency here. You have to relocate land at Bahrain, which it did. But Flight 149 flew on and it landed at Kuwait Airport with this full load of people and began to refuel at the very moment that Iraqi tanks were surrounding the airport. 
having reached the airport very rapidly uh, from uh, crossing the border to the north. And shortly afterwards, MiG jets bombed the airport. Of course, the plane was refueling, so one spark and it would have all gone up. The All of the passengers and crew were taken hostage and used as human shields by Saddam. Um, no doubt we can talk about what human shields meant later. The small group of people, the young men who got on board at the last minute, all disappeared, never to be seen again. And it is in solving that mystery that I began my 30-year-long investigation into this. Yeah, and uh, you have one section in the book called The Search for Truth. Seems to me that you know the truth, or we all know the truth. There are lots of newspaper headlines about what happened, lots of suggestions about 149, this BBC headline suggesting, was it on a secret military intelligence mission? Uh, Channel 4 asking a similar sorts of questions. Uh, the Daily Mirror with a picture of Saddam Hussein and one of the hostages taken from the plane um, uh, making suggestions as well. And here we have a couple of other kids taken from the plane. Um, uh, the Mirror suggesting that Thatcher was in on this. You seem to conclude from the book, I mean, you can't do it categorically or in factual terms, but clearly uh, senior British and US military and political uh, figures knew what was happening uh, and they allowed this plane to land because they wanted to get these secret servicemen into Kuwait. Is that fair? Yes. And, and by the way, I, I can say it categorically, apart from all the information I gathered over the last 30 years, uh, a very brave former MI6 officer called Tony Pace has come forward uh, uh, to confirm the whole story. And he was the MI6. Yeah, you have a section people. on this in the book, actually, about Pace. Yeah. So um, the, the geopolitical uh, thing is that this mission was pushed by Mrs. Thatcher as a favor to the Americans. The team was sent in to keep an eye on the movements of the Iraqis, classic surveillance. You know, where were they deploying? Where was the Republican Guard deploying? Where were their tanks going? Where were they putting their artillery? And the team reported back, the four two-man teams who were on board reported back right from the start that the Iraqis were adopting defensive positions in Kuwait. That is, they were not in any way, shape or form threatening to invade Saudi Arabia. That's the actual intelligence from the ground. While this intelligence was arriving, Dick Cheney and Norman Schwarzkopf flew to Saudi Arabia and they had a meeting with King Fahd. And they said to the king, oh, Saddam could invade your country. So we have a solution. And our solution is you allow us to bring in a massive military deployment onto Saudi soil. And much to everybody's surprise, the king said yes. Now, the consequences of this, so that's based on clearly faulty intelligence, by the way. They weren't, he, he never intended to invade Iraq, uh, sorry, to invade Saudi Arabia. Many interviews of his generals afterwards confirmed that. But the consequences of this are terrible because a, a very wealthy Saudi had gone to the Saudi royals and said, look, I will raise an army of holy warriors 
and I will kick Saddam Hussein out for you, and you must not at any account have foreigners on sacred Saudi soil. So the, so they rejected that offer, and they took the Cheney-Schwarzkopf offer instead. And that man, Osama bin Laden, swore revenge on the West, and he carried it out in 9-11, and the consequences since have been shocking. I, I want to read you a very important quote in the book, and this is from Richard Clark who's a senior, uh, well-known counterintelligence expert who worked in a number of U.S. administrations. Clark talks about the decision, that decision to have American troops come into Saudi. The rise of al-Qaeda in the 1990s, the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan, the second U.S. war with Iraq, the rise of ISIS, all followed that August 1990 decision to deploy large U.S. forces to the Gulf. And he sums up this quote by saying, talking about the Arab Spring and the creation of failed states in Iraq, Yemen, Libya, and Syria. Taken together, these events caused the deaths of hundreds of thousands, turned millions of people into refugees, and cost trillions of dollars. Now, that decision did not need to be made. First off, because as I said, the intelligence was saying exactly the opposite. But secondly, because it was clear right from the start that Saddam was prepared to negotiate. At the end of the day, to repeat, this was only about an oil field and oil field revenues crossing the border. So I, I'm absolutely clear on the sub, on the um, the idea that this could have all been avoided. And uh, sadly, it's an unexamined part of history. People need to have another hard look at it. Uh, it's the war that we forgot, but, you know, it, it had all of these terrible consequences. It's interesting that you make this argument because it, in, in some ways it makes the first Gulf War rather like the second in the sense that justification was invented by Americans. And in fact, Cheney was as much involved in the second Gulf War as he was in the first. So it's the same cast of characters on the American side, isn't it? Absolutely the same cast of characters. If you look at all the discussions around August 1990, uh, yeah, the same the same group of people. And um, uh, and I think that um, one of the problems with August 1990 is, as I said, Bush assembled Bush Senior assembled this grand coalition. It seemed like a quick and easy victory. They kicked Saddam out of Kuwait. There weren't that many casualties. And life moved on, and we all sort of thought of it as the good war, whereas the 2003 war, which I covered um, on the ground, was the bad war. But in fact, they, the first war was, in terms of its devastating consequences, equally bad. What you're suggesting then also is that this relationship between the elder Bush, the first Bush, and Margaret Thatcher in the way in which Thatcher was willing to lie to help um, Bush in 1990 was, was, was quite similar also to the relationship between Bush's son, George Bush, and um, the British Prime Minister at the time, uh, yeah. uh, Tony Blair, in terms of his support for another, well, even more disastrous war, which ultimately uh, cost uh, Blair... Uh, his career. Yes, in 1990, this uh, mission, by the way, was undertaken. I've, I've spoken to people who were in the mission team and people who planned it, 
and it was a direct uh, on the direct orders of Mrs. Thatcher. She was very, very keen on this mission uh, when others uh, thought it was a bad idea. And also, well, she was also uh, it, it, this was post Falklands, uh, and and she had the if if anyone had the um, the sickness of empire land. Uh, and the sort of the absurdity of British decline, it was Mrs. Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher. Yes, what you call gung-ho, of course. And so she ordered the mission, but also if you look at the history of her relationship between her and President Bush, the senior Bush at that time, he was actually quite reluctant initially to be too strong or aggressive on the question of Iraq in Kuwait. And Mrs. Thatcher, she pushed him quite hard. The whole line in the sand speech, which Bush eventually made, he was clearly somewhat reluctantly um, pushed into that by Mrs. Thatcher, who also, by the way, my research shows, extraordinarily um, was prepared to use tactical nuclear weapons as a last thought. She had told mission planners that uh, if um, uh, was in Kuwait and threatening Saudi Arabia, maybe they should drop a small nuke to destroy the Republican Guard. I mean, that's just, yeah, mind-boggling. Are, are you concerned, Stephen, that your argument might be seen by some to be an apology for Saddam Hussein, who uh, undoubtedly was a mass murderer of his own people, of other people's, and indeed the behavior of the Iraqi troops in terms of these human hostages from uh, Flight 149 also suggests that in some senses the war was justified, whether or not, the Iraqis were planning to invade Saudi Arabia. Uh, you suggest that uh, Hussein was 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 ready to negotiate on Kuwait. Um, firstly, he had no right to be there in the first place. And secondly, uh, Saddam Hussein has never really or had never really negotiated with anyone. Yes, no, that's a fair point. I mean, there's uh, most of the book is, in fact, nego- uh, devoted to the terrible things that Saddam Hussein and his regime did to these human shields. Yeah, I mean, it's a tragic story of these people's lives. One or two of them were killed. Most of their lives were ruined after. Some committed suicide. Some had nervous breakdowns. Some were fearful for the rest of their lives. I mean, their experience was appalling. Yes, devastating. So he, he had scattered them at 70 different places in Iraq that he thought the Allies would bomb, potentially. Ironically enough, this is when he actually had weapons of mass destruction programs. So some of them were at chemical facilities, some of them were at nuclear uh, research facilities, some of them were at dams. And they were treated abysmally. Um, There were mock executions, sexual assaults and other assaults, near starvation conditions. And um, the whole thing, by the way, was then covered up by the West. This is one of the extraordinary things that's driven me on with this story. Hardly anybody knows about the terrible plight of the human shields of the first Gulf War, the mass hostage taking and the suffering. The British government commissioned a report on it. When they came back, it was called Operation Sandcastle and they promptly suppressed it and it's been kept a secret ever since. So no, I have no, Saddam was a, a, a monster. And I have to say, as somebody who was in Baghdad, in 2003, just after he fell and saw at least temporarily the outpouring of joy of the Iraqis at his departure, 
Um, I have no brief for him whatsoever. But we need to, as investigative reporters, as historians, seriously examine the decision making of Bush and Thatcher. So I'm not saying let the dictator get away with the invasion, but I am saying, you know, did 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 all of those US troops need to arrive in Saudi Arabia? And and I think anybody looking at it hard and look at the documents, I've seen CIA documents and masses of paperwork, the answer is simply no. So this part of history really needs a serious re-examination. It is indeed uh, a historical book, Flight 149. 1990 now seems so far away. You note that back then, uh, and I'm quoting you here, the world of 1990 was one in which it was easier to hide the truth. There were no mobile phones to photograph or live stream events, no social media to contradict official statements. It was a very different time, wasn't it, Stephen? It was a very different time, and uh, and I, I discussed this uh, with my um, students at the University of Otago in, in the realization that most of them weren't alive. It was a very different time. I think it was easier to hide secrets. I think that we felt at that stage uh, that while all politicians might be slightly deceptive, that there wouldn't be this outright lying. You couldn't get away with it now. I mean, clearly, um, the whole WMD fiasco of 2003 was a game changer. And uh, now such a mission and the cover up of a mission, you couldn't get away with it because apart from anything else, the, everybody on the plane would have been, you know, popping their mobiles and taking photographs and, and, and video. So, yes, it was a different time. But I, I, again, to get back to the point, um, I, I'm staggered when I did a, a bit of book research on how little uh, time historians have devoted to this. As I said, because 9-11 came along and 2003 came along and the world has changed in so many ways. But we really need to look back. Um, and we really need yeah, to ask and you, those you say that um, one of the, the conspiracies which you reveal in the book is that this British Airways plane was a, 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 a eventually destroyed on the runway. Um, but after the war, it, it became clear that, that the plane was destroyed, Flight 149, not by the Iraqis, but by Allied bombers or, or U.S. bombers in, in order yeah. to cover up this conspiracy is that fair yeah the u.s air force it always struck me as strange at the time and subsequently uh the iraqis had looted everything they could when they left kuwait they you know faucets and and light bulbs and why would they leave this uh 747 sitting there uh, um rather than bring it back to iraq why would they destroy it well the answer is they didn't destroy it the brits asked the u.s air force to destroy it and, and British Airways, by the way, whose who's role in this whole thing has been disgraceful, they, they um, tried to cover things up themselves. The pilot of the plane, Richard Brunyate, I've established, was an MI6 asset. British Airways got a huge insurance payout after that plane was destroyed. And at the time they got the huge insurance payout, they were actively going through the courts to stop any British passengers getting compensation. 
So that in itself is 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 pretty disgraceful behaviour. Be, I think. Be, uh, I'm not excusing that behaviour, but to be fair to British Airways, they were put in an impossible situation too. I mean, they they weren't the architects of this conspiracy. They were as much used by the British government um, as uh, as these passengers. What's the relationship? Have you did you uncover anything in your book? In the relationship between British Airways and, and the US or the or the UK government? Yes, British Airways, uh, by the way, are known to the British uh, Secret Service, that's MI6, as Bucks Fizz, as in the champagne. And uh, they frequently, the relationship was very close indeed. Lord King, the British Airways chairman at the time, was a major fundraiser for the Conservative Party and a very close friend of Mrs. Thatcher. And it's clear that at some level, British Airways knew uh, what their plane was about to be used for. As I said, um, I have discovered absolutely authoritatively, in fact, from his own words at the time, that the cap British Airways captain of Flight 149 was an MI6 asset. So I don't think we can... So, but, so, so, but, 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 but what's your point there? I mean, any, any pilot could have flown the plane in. What, what was his role? as the captain of the plane to make sure that it wasn't turned back it's as simple as that i think um sadly um uh richard bunyate a, a very nice man who i interviewed many years ago has um died of cancer many well, people why didn't who... the passengers um, maybe again this is uh sort of a legacy of history of things being different back then but why didn't many of the passengers sue the british or american government well they did uh, and, and there was a tremendous amount of unequal treatment. So the American passengers sued and got substantial confidential settlements from British Airways. The French passengers sued, battled through the courts. From the British the Airways or from the U.S. government? From British Airways. U.S. passengers sued, got substantial um, yeah, But if your story is Airways. true, then, then they should be suing the U.S. or the U.K. governments rather than British Airways. Yeah, it's pretty hard to sue a government. And uh, I've talked to the lawyers who were involved and it was it was easier to sue British Airways. So the French passengers sued and won substantial compensation. The British passengers did sue and it went all the way to the House of Lords, but they lost under the Warsaw Convention. So effectively, um, there was a tremendous disparity of treatment here. But yeah, I mean, they could have sued the government um, a, a wonderful London solicitor uh, took on some um, some of the passengers and they tried to sue the British government for what's called malfeasance in public office, deliberately exposing people to risk. Uh, but unsurprisingly, he was denied legal aid to mount his uh, case and it collapsed. Why, uh, Stephen, I know you're based in New Zealand, um... Why, and you've been studying this now for 20 or 30 years, why did you get so intrigued? So uh, even though I'm a Kiwi, I spent most of my life abroad. Uh, I was the Los Angeles correspondent for the London Sunday Times for two years, and I worked on the national press in, um, in the UK. And I was news editor of The Independent on Sunday in the UK when I got a call, actually just about two days after the plane landed, uh, and somebody said, and a contact said to me, what's saying about this plane isn't right. This is not an accident. You should look into it. And that's what started my investigation. 
what's driven me on over the years is firstly a, a very determined attempts by the British government to to stop the book coming out. Um, oh, they have. Well, how, a, what have the British government been tried to do? Did they threaten you? Well, yeah, absolutely. And I was at one stage. My sources uh, told me that I was under surveillance. Uh, they produced some very skilled disinformation to uh, sent me some supposedly secret documents which had been slightly altered. If I'd gone ahead and published them, my reputation would have been destroyed. All sorts of very clever matters. In my career, I have written a lot about intelligence services and British uh, and special forces. And I've been taken to court, by the way, I think for the British government to stop either TV programs or books that I've done coming out. I've won each time. I have a good track record. Well, uh, your, your book is but, published by um, Public Affairs. Were they careful? Did, did you have a team of lawyers working on this to make sure that your publisher wouldn't be sued by the British government? Absolutely, yes. Lawyers went all over this, uh, both uh, for the British publication and the British publication and and. and and we they're both out fearful. this week. I mean, um, so I think for our, our viewers and listeners, it's 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 good to buy your new book, uh, Flight for One Forty Nine. One reason is because uh, both the, the the U.S. and certainly the British government doesn't want you to read it. So if you want to read something that the U U.K. government isn't happy about, read uh, Stephen Davis's new book, Flight One Nine. You're going to make a movie, Stephen. It 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 it's, it feels like a movie book. Yeah, a good point, uh, Andrew. There is a there is a, a a podcast series and a drama and a TV drama both in development for, for uh, next year. Um, let me put in a quick word about the U.S. government's role. By the way, uh, when uh, the Saloon family came home, they were Americans who were on one four nine who were captured, and their story is in the book. Uh, again, a terrible story of of suffering. When uh, George Saloon from Georgia came back and tried to uh, ask questions about what happened, why the plane was there, why they landed, who these people were there. He got a call from the State Department who warned him to stop asking questions. So the US were equally uh, enthusiastic in, their, in the cover-up as the Brits were. So maybe, um, uh, maybe Stephen, uh, in our conspiratorial world, uh, conspiracies aren't always inventions of social media or, or paranoid people. There's some truth to them. Is that what you're really saying uh, in this book, uh, Flight 149? So what I've done for the last three years, Andrew, I've developed a new course at university here in misinformation and disinformation. Um, it's of great interest to me in all the disturbing conspiracy theories that um, that uh, spin on the internet and all this crazy nonsense. And one of the, my uh, roles in that is to explain to students that there are, of course, actual conspiracies as well as the dafter kind. Actual conspiracies are defined by governments and small groups of people getting together to do things in secret that they don't want you to know about. Every investigative reporter knows that they're trying to disclose it. I guess the difference between actual conspiracies and the crazy kind as the crazy kind usually involves, you know, 400,000 people keeping this amazing secret for, for, for many years. Um, in fact, there was a brilliant study as somebody, a mathematician said, how many people would have been required to have kept the secret that the first moon landing was faked since 1965 when they, the mission was planned. And yeah, he came up with 400,000 people. The other thing, uh, Andrews, a very important point these days, 
Governments love, by the way, wild conspiracy theories, mostly, because they tell you what, they, they obscure actual conspiracies. And so investigative reporters asking genuine questions about stories can just be labeled and dismissed as conspiracy theorists. Yeah, I understand that. Um, muddying the water is the business of governments, particularly governments like the US and UK when it comes to the Middle East, who have a horrible history, a tragic um, a history of, of interference and lying. Uh, Stephen Davis's new book, Flight 149, uh, A Hostage Crisis, A Secret Special Forces Unit and the Origins of the Gulf War, the the first Gulf War, essentially, um, is an important new book and uh, very controversial and very interesting and also very well written, written at a very human level. Congratulations, Stephen, on the book. You're in New Zealand at the moment. You've successfully fought COVID. We haven't in the West, so we're still stuck indoors. What else yeah. should people be reading in addition to your new book, Flight 149? Okay, well, one of the things that I try and uh, teach my students, which is largely ignored, is the importance of geography in international affairs, the importance of the shape of land, you know, why Russia might be paranoid about getting invaded. You have to understand that this is just a huge flat expanse between that and the rest of Europe. So books which explain the importance of geography in geopolitics, I think, are really, really very valuable. And there's a book here by Tim Marshall, a very fine journalist, um, called The Prisoners of Geography. Yeah, I know the book. I actually own that book. It's a very good book. Yes, it's a fabulous book. Uh, that and uh, um, actually Robert Kaplan wrote a very good book about called The Revenge of Geography. Yeah, another people good book. To, people need to understand these things. Sadly, um, and without wishing to insult your 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 countrymen, I, I, I love the United States. I love working in California, but too many Americans uh, know nothing about geography and therefore don't really understand geopolitical and historical events. They can't be understood unless you understand where places are, how borders got drawn, and, and other influences. So Spe I, I Especially the Middle book. East, given the legacy of colonialism, it's no surprise then that your new book, uh, Flight 149, opens with uh, a map of Kuwait, one of the most artificial states in the world, carved out of Iraq and Saudi Arabia, post-colonial state. Uh, Stephen, congratulations on the book. Keep causing trouble. Keep upsetting governments. That's what we need good journalists like you to do. Uh, keep well, and we'll talk again in the not-too-distant future. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew.